Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. And have you ever wanted to turn back the clock to when times were easier? No, I'm not talking about your childhood. I'm talking about the European Renaissance. Life was simpler then. If you were a sleeper, if you were a mage, things could get pretty messy. We're going to get into it on the show today. But first, Terry, are there any announcements worth hearing about? Yes, I have two announcements. One, I apologize in advance that at some point in my life, I became the guy who started saying renaissance. So I just need to get out in front of that. Apparently, it's a British thing. No idea how it happened. Okay, well, today we are talking about Sorcerer's Crusade. This book came out in 1998. There were four authors with additional material from eight other people. Uh, Clocks in at 290 pages, which is almost 300 pages, pretty standard for a core book at that time in White Wolf's history. That page count is not, of course, counting the uh, character sheet that you are allowed to photocopy, everybody, and the index. So today, uh, we're not going to give a walkthrough of the book. We, we've never given you a detailed walkthrough for a core book because it would take a lot of time and get into a lot of details that uh, tend to repeat between core books uh, since we are dealing with basically the same rule system. So instead, I'm just going to briefly introduce each chapter, and then we'll give you our thoughts on it. And of course, we'll discuss the book as a whole once we get to the end. We start off with the prelude, which is a 12-page fiction to introduce the game dramatically. Uh, Two mages from different backgrounds awaken, and we get to hear about it. Terry, were there any thoughts on the prelude fiction? It used a remarkable number of antiquated or archaic terms to kind of set the mood. It did that thing that I always smile at when a book is trying to make itself sound old-timey, where it uses no longer current terms for people's like region of origin, like when it talks about the Saracen, and I'm like, oh man, and that is always a shortcut to me that says, we are in ye olde times. There were two pieces of color illustration. I thought the writing was perfectly fine. It kind of established that there was a somewhat mysterious world and that everything was always cold. So that's something I think of when I think Renaissance. (laughs) That's it for me. Yeah, um, I thought the fiction was well-written, but I do have one chief criticism of that. I think, in especially in a core book, the prelude fiction should give you a pretty clear idea of what a stories are going to be like using this material. And one problem that we get is this story focuses on the obscure alchemical concept of the rebus. Two people, a man and a woman, become one person that is neither man nor woman. I don't think that belonged in the prelude fiction because that's not a core component of the game. Uh, You shouldn't give the players the notion that to become a mage, they have to combine their character with someone else's character. So that's, it's like throwing people for a loop. You get into the game book and it's like, where's the rules on making a rebus? Well, they're not in here. Well, you know, you you got me all hyped up for it and and it's not something I normally do, but something I can't even do with the rules here. So, but moving on to uh, our introduction, which is nine pages and pitches the concept of the game and gives us a lexicon. Uh, Terry, your thoughts on the introduction? The introduction sets out a world where magic, faith, and reason are on somewhat equal footings. It has the it talks about the advent of a mass media. It mentions, yeah, we're focusing on Renaissance Europe because we kind of have to pick a place to start. And I'm like, okay. It introduces the idea of future fates, which indicates how things may turn out if they want. Within the lexicon, a lot of them, I appreciated the fact that in Mage Core, there are a number of terms listed as archaic, like the usage of the term cray instead of node. And here it's like, we call them craze. I'm like, yes, internal consistency. This is the only book that, to me, has a term for mundane reality. I guess you could say outside the void engineers calling Earth the mud ball. It's referred to as the common world. That term is never used again. I wish it were, but it's good to know that the term exists. A bunch of the terms revolving around the Umbra are different and suggest that there is a different arrangement of those elements. And I look forward to seeing how how that turns out. They talk about the Aethers, which are regions of ever-increasing esoteric thought that radiate from Earth. And we have the idea of a Regio, which is an area of essence. There seem to be more types of shallowings, and we'll, we'll get into that. And uh, the lexicon was long, but it's a different setting, and everything has kind of a different term. So at least in this case, it made sense. 
I found a, a quote in here that got my attention. Uh, quote, future supplements will treat the Orient, the New World, the Middle East, and Africa with the attention and perspective they deserve, end quote. Yeah, we're still kind of waiting for those. I haven't seen them yet, yeah. but so, uh, in, any day now. Writing checks you might not be able to cash there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but uh, this book did get nine supplements, and um, although I haven't uh, read through every one of them, they look pretty interesting to me. So I'm not going to criticize. I just thought that was was pretty funny to see. I like the point that it's it states this is not a historical simulation. It isn't about history. It's about rewriting history, and that uh, gives a bit of d- dramatic kick that uh, I appreciated. Also, when I read through the lexicon as a true mage fan, I do pay attention when there's a lexicon in a mage book, and I think this one was well done. I think it was helpful. I, I think it made sense uh, for introducing a new setting. I think as a, a storyteller, I would make a point of, of, you know, before running a couple of sessions, I'd come back and read it again and pick out a few words I'd want to pepper my game with. So I, I, I appreciate it. Thought they did a good job here. So chapter one gives us an introduction to mages, magic, and craze, the old term for nodes. This was a brief chapter, but Terry, did you have any thoughts on that? Chapter one does a few things to me. One, it kind of starts establishing the fact that paradigms within Sorcerer's Crusade are going to be a little bit more unified. This may be a false case of parochialism just because it is talking about Renaissance Europe where there just may be a further presumption that everything is going to be divine or pagan, that there's really no other option in the way the cosmos can be organized. It tends to talk about the myths of how mage see the world as being more commonly accepted across Magi. It talks about how the world is great and the human mind fragile, so God wrapped us in the mists of ignorance for our protection. Mages can see through that mist. It talks about how everyone more or less believes in an avatar, which in this case is referred to as the daemon, and it is viewed as a teacher and a guide. It takes you through the forest of seeking, uh, which is specifically a test at 10 crossroads, and the essences are tied to the classical elements. It talks about how there is a common framework for ascension, that you go through the steps of awareness, instruction, conflict, and resolution, and that your paradigm is distilled into a word which limits what you can do. This is slightly different than the hermetic word that a hermetic student picks during their apprenticeship, but the idea that there are limitations on what magic can do and calling that a word, I like as an interesting concept. I don't recall it coming up much later in the book, but at least it's kind of uh, mentioned. We get the idea that magic is called weavery and each type will use different tools and that we still have resonance, it is strong. And one of the lines it uses that I liked is, resonance flavors the water of magic and the scourge spills it. The scourge being a kind of a proto form of paradox. We get a list of craze and covenants, covenants being a another term for chantry. And I'm all for a big list of things a story teller can use. Some of these are invented, like it's like, yeah, there's a demonic hellhole here or something like that. But usually it is based, when I was Googling it, on something that actually existed. So you can at least find the darn thing on a map, even if it is fundamentally fantastic. So it is starting to give us the tools we need to run a game that is set five centuries ago. Yeah, well, with chapter one, I thought it was it was brief. It was to the point. I think it was a good example of efficient writing. Didn't waste my time as a reader. And I kind of liked the notion of referring to magic as weaving or a weavery, because I think back to photos and videos I've seen of you know, hundreds of years ago in both East Asia and Europe, where people had a wooden loom in their house where they would try to create a piece of, of cloth or, or similar sort of thing. And uh, it was it was large, it was complicated, it was kind of impressive, at least at, at those times. It was their livelihood, so they took really good care of it, and everything that came out of it was a very high value, and they took good care of its products. So uh, I, I kind of like that as a symbol of magic. It just sort of clicks for me. But chapter two gives us an overview of the regions of Europe and what Renaissance society was like, a detailed timeline of sleeper history, then info on what mages focus on at that time, and a detailed timeline of mage events. So chapter two is pretty beefy. What were your thoughts on that? We don't get one timeline. We get two timelines. We got the mundane timeline and we got the magical timeline. And this starts filling in the 
ideas that we had gotten actually in revised. We start getting information on who Tezgul the Insane was. We get information on what the War of the Dust Witch was, or the Burning River Eras, or the Ghost Tiger Reign. One of the things the book does that kind of made me squint is when it talks about what is happening now, quote-unquote, it does frequently go back several centuries where it'll be like, yes, in the 1200s, this started to happen. I'm like, that was a quarter millennia ago. So I don't know if they just wanted to include fun historical bits or just trying to provide more information. The book tries to tell you both what is happening and what hasn't happened. For instance, it talks about how the Ottomans have overrun Eastern Europe. They are a shadow over the the continent. They could capture Constantinople. They haven't yet. Talks about the Moors controlling Spain. Kind of suggests that it's going to focus on the Italian city-states as being the focus of the game just because they kind of receive the most word count. It gives us it gives us rough population counts of areas where it's like, oh, Paris has 100,000 citizens and France has about 15 million people, but with fluid borders. Germany is still a collection of um, city-states. It talks about China being the largest nation on the earth and the Ming still holding to old ways that Japan mirrors Italy and having scarce resources and using... It wisely talks about how we're on the era of the age of sale and what that is going to do to the world. It gives a snapshot of what the current state of technology is. It talks about the turn that is kind of happening in Islam as it becomes a little bit more lowercase c conservative. I I thought the the timeline was pretty fascinating because it filled in a bunch of holes in mage history. It talked about how 3,500 years ago, Thothmes and Hapshetsut summoned mages and formed the Reed of Thoth and the Cupbearers of Isis, and that that immediately broke down into a dozen groups But the different thing here is it suggests that they had found true and potent magical lore, which would eventually make its way into the mortal world. And they give this as the reason that so many mystic societies have very similar symbols to one another. It talks about the internal divides caused by religion within each group, that within the traditions, there are highly pious mages that are divided against pagan mages, and that even within the order of reason, you have the very doctrinaire cabal of pure thought, the Gabrielites, who are in contrast to several other lodges and groups within the order of reason. It talks about how even in this era, the progress brought to high science is being floundered by the scourge and there are a few bits that don't quite mix or not brought up in the rest of the game it talks about how the druishi are formed in the 1460s this is porthos's cabal it talks about how the term disparates is in use in this time it talks about when we got airships in the 1400s in the 1400s we got to the moon that there was a secret masonic war it filled in a lot of stuff and to me this is a section that even if you are not using sorcerer's crusade but you can pick it up real cheap on drive through rpg during a sale i think it gives great food for thought to populate the back end of your game we also find out that tezgul the insane was raised by Appa Blood Axe. And as a general rule of thumb, I don't mess with people whose last name is Blood Axe. And those are my thoughts on the chapter. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Terry. This chapter does at times lean into too far into the past and too far into the future. I think the people working on this chapter were very enthusiastic about uh, their, their history info. I can certainly appreciate that. But yeah, it did give us a lot of reading. This book, of course, says that mage fans are free to run their game at whatever point in history they like. But it tries to support games ranging from 1400 to 1550. It gives an overview of uh, normal real-world history, politics, and economics. And as I was reading through these sections, I was thinking, wow, this is this is a lot of information. Do I need to know all this to run a game? And then I realized what it was telling me in the intro to the book, and that is, no, you do not have to know all this information. They're just giving it to you in the hopes that after reading it, you will get some ideas for a story you want to run. For example, it talks all about how the Italian city-states were propped up by trade from the ships they were running back and forth across the Mediterranean. So a storyteller reading this can say, oh, okay, if my players want to strike a blow against the order of reason, then shut down their finances. And they do that by sinking ships in the Mediterranean. Okay, and they sail from here to here. Okay, now I can build a story around this if you want to. And if you don't, 
Don't worry about it. You don't have to be a history buff to run this game. Let's see. Also, the after that, uh, those sections I mentioned, there's a detailed, you know, year by year uh, timeline of real world, you could say, sleeper history. And again, it's not names and dates to memorize. That's not the point here. Uh, you're supposed to read through it and say, okay, this and this sound interesting. I'll, I'll put that, uh, you know, on the back burner for possible future stories. But all this other stuff, it, it just doesn't interest me. So fine. Forget about it. You don't need to know what the German city-states were doing at this time if your game isn't based there. Let's see, there's a quote on page 46 that just grabbed my attention so much. Talking about the order of reason, quote, They begin to weave a single system of magic and a paradigm to go with it, end quote. So, yeah, you could, this does kind of support the view that the order of reason and possibly by extension the technocracy has one paradigm that kind of holds them all together. Now, of course, this isn't authoritative. You can't take one sentence out of one book and say, ah, this is how all of Mage works. But it's just nice that, that I came across this myself. And when a book backs me up, you know, I get that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. Can't really help that. That basically sums up my thoughts on chapter two. So, why don't we take a look? At chapter 3, which gives us an overview of the Umbra and how it differs from the Umbra of uh, the modern era. So, Terry, chapter 3. It indicates that the cosmos is broken down into three bits. Outside of the common world, we have the first ring being the penumbra. The second ring is the Vashaya, which is the dreams of gods and men and the humors of reality. The third ring is horizon, which binds them together and holds the heavens. Within the earth, we have the contrarium, which holds hell and the bones and bowels of creation. We have the mist, which is kind of the term for the gauntlet, plus the periphery. It is visible at night to the awakened. So this book is very good at saying no, no, the barrier between worlds is much thinner now. In addition to that, we have not just shallowings, but we have regio. So we have the idea that there are shallowings that like a Venetian merchant can stumble through and find themselves in the penumbra and hopefully stumble out again. But also there are other regions where mate that functionally have a gauntlet rating of zero that a mage can step across with no difficulty, but they need to be a mage. Some of the terms are a little bit inconsistent. Like it says crossing the gauntlet or requires spirit mastery and when I hear master I assume fifth dot it talks about how the gauntlet very much changes thickness with time of day and and religious holidays we get a little bit of information on the paths of the wick that there is kind of this within the periphery this set of paths that you can slip into that allow you to physically walk anywhere on the face of the planet the dreaming is referred to as the dreaming as opposed to the maya and it recommends you have a fairy escort you move about the regions of the umbra on moon paths to get to the courts and the aethers which are realms and are believed to be earthbound demons and angels each element has a great court and it covers both the western and eastern as it were elements that beyond that we have shells that correspond to virtues as well as to planets we get the idea that in the outer ring there are the true horizon realms which are the fragmenti and they are the shard realms and the vada which are the shade realms it has an aside that says hey 2e is different what gives and it's like i don't care and i'm like yeah that's that's fine i'm perfectly fine with different eras having different umbre and not needing an explanation as how they got from one to another the thing that i thought was interesting is I hope we get information at some point suggesting that there are things within the Umbra that are available in this era that are not available later. Right now, the big thing seems to be that stepping sideways, that crossing into the Umbra is much easier as a general rule, but we don't have a lot of information on maybe what cool stuff is there that isn't in a contemporary setting. And I hope that's something we, we get in future books. I thought this was perfectly fine. It seems to presume that you're either going to fill in your own in a lot of these cases, or you're going to go to Infinite Tapestry, Beyond the Barriers, Book of Worlds, for more information. It also recommends looking at Werewolf for additional guides. And one of the things I have in the back of my head is the degree to which this book is going to presume that you are going to read other mage books. It seems to be higher than if it were just another mage core book. The The presumption seems to be in that a lot of the rules provided later are a little bit less detailed than we get in other books, that it kind of assumes you're going to be willing to do a little bit more, more homework to run a period game. So I'm curious to see if that trend continues. But those are my thoughts on chapter three. Yeah, I, I enjoyed seeing that shallowings are more common in this era of history. I, I always liked uh, shallowings since I read about them in Book of Chantries, so I'm happy. Realms 
of the Umbra are called aethers, which uh, would take some getting used to for me, but uh, I like the new term. The elemental quartz, which exist in the high Umbra, are more important in this realm and are more likely to uh, feature in a game if you're taking your players into the Umbra. I thought it was a shame that they did not invent any new Horizon Realms for mages. Uh, they talk about, hey, Doisetep is there, the realm, the Horizon Realm called Horizon, created by the Council of Nine in concert. That's there, and, and those are important, and mages uh, go there. But I just was expecting to hear about some new ones that, uh, you know, we, we didn't hear about in second edition, but they were not there. So a little disappointed, but um, of course, so storytellers can create their own. So let's take a look at chapter four. And this is character generation and explanation of traits like attributes, abilities, essences, backgrounds, etc. Terry, what did you think? So this is one of two chapters where I went through with a fine-tooth comb and I'm like, how different, which is something I do for fun. Quickly, it establishes that mages are kind of a cut above mortal, mortals in that they quite simply get more dots. Essence is more generally agreed on and it is a touch from the maker or alternatively a shadow from your past life and they are tied to the elements. You have uh, pattern, which is tied to earth, the fortress, castellium, furo, dynamic, the fire, mare, primordial, the deep see Susaro, the questing wind of the crossroads. We get two new archetypes, the waif and the renunciate. I don't know about you, Adam, but when I ran two e-games, I just felt that there was something missing, and it turned out it was the archetype of the waif. My favorite ability description was probably two points of appearance. You were described as a handsome plowman. I would be flattered if anyone ever referred to me as being a handsome plowman. Instruction gives a proper XP discount. We have larceny and animal ken. Uh, meditation can add to Enigma rolls. Stone lore has been promoted to a specialization of metaphysics. Right. Exactly. I'm glad stone lore <laughs> finally found its home. We get we get secondaries. I don't know why we have secondaries, but they're in here. You can finally have dots in money lending. The background, some of the terms have changed. Instead of wonders, we have magical treasure, which, fine. True faith is in here. We get a lot of information on that in comparison. The way that you buy off foci changes, where in previous editions at some Arite level you started shedding them. In previous editions it was as low as at Arite 3. Here you start buying it off at Arite 7 and you lose 3 foci each time. It mentions that mortals can't use willpower to get automatic successes. It talks about how Scourge burns off at 1 point a week of no magic use versus 2e where it was only if you incurred no new paradox but you could still do magic. Your affinity sphere can be anything and is not tied to your group. These things aren't particularly set. It also mentions that your daemon can grow or reduce in strength. And if that means that you can buy additional dots of avatar, I am here for it. But otherwise, it just kind of sets up how a character is going to exist in the world. And it did a perfectly fine job of that. There are things that I wish had more detail, things that I thought were a little bit wordy, but otherwise it feels like a reasonably well-written 2e book otherwise. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, I thought pretty much the same thing. I'm not uh, as adept at picking out rules differences as, as other mage fans, but I thought the skill list was solid. I thought it, it made sense to me. I would take out a few secondary skills and reduce the list a little. I, I think there's some unnecessary overlap, but I wouldn't totally rewrite the thing. I'd just knock out probably two or three and then call it good. Uh, so I, I'm pretty happy with what we have here. I noticed the magical treasure costs uh, two for every level. It uh, seems to me that the authors of this book would prefer that we don't use them or don't use them very much. But uh, So that, that did get my attention, but uh, I think it's useful. I think it's pretty good. Chapter five is Mage Factions. We see Disparate's Council of Nine and Order of Reason. Each tradition and convention gets two pages. Uh, let me give you an overview. Uh, since I do like those factions. The Council of Nine Mystic Traditions is just forming in the 1400s. The Sons of Ether and Virtual Adepts haven't started yet. The Alibatine and Salificati are in the traditions. I'll mention noteworthy differences, but for the most part, these are the traditions we know from previous mage books. Uh, the Akashic mages are mostly in East Asia. Some have traveled to Europe. Uh, celestial choristers are mostly not part of the Catholic Church. The majority are wanderers who avoid the Church's corruption. The Dream Speakers are also visiting Europe in small numbers. The Cult of Ecstasy is called the Seers of Kronos. 
they also answer to Sahajiya. The order of reason will eventually become the technocracy. At this time, there are seven conventions and one hidden group. The artificers will become Iteration X. At this point, they are blacksmiths and inventors, but some pursue alchemy and mathematics. The cabal of pure thought, also called the Gabrielites, will become the New World Order. They operate within the Catholic Church. Their most visible faction is the warriors who hunt the night folk that plague mankind and the enemies of the Order of Reason. At this point, they are doing many things that will later be blamed on the Celestial Chorus. The Celestial Masters will become half of the Void Engineers. They study the skies to make charts and predict future events. They also create ships capable of flying up to the stars and exploring there. The Craft Masons pursue sacred geometry and are masters of architecture and inventions. They revere the common man and are suspicious of religion, nobility, and other elite groups. Craft Masons will be declared too radical and be dismantled by their fellow conventions in the future. The High Guild, also called the Grand Financiers, will become the Syndicate. The Hippocratic Circle, also called the Kosians, will become the Progenitors. In this era, they are more involved with medicine than modifying or creating life. The, I'm going to butcher this, the Kasirafai are a secret group of spies, assassins, and enforcers who advance the goals of the Order of Reason. They watch daedalian and mages as well as outsiders. They will fade away completely in the years ahead. The Void Seekers, also called the Explorators, will become the other half of the Void Engineers. They explore new places on Earth and document their findings. Well, Terry, any thoughts on Chapter 5? Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that it says before it introduces a group, what you need to know is that all traditions or tradition-like entities share a common faith or ideal, protocols, initiations, and hierarchies, some common style, a common goal of some sort, and just the idea that what a fellowship or a tradition is is kind of defined, I thought was useful. One of the things that each of the sections does is it tells you who the primus is, or in the case of the Order of Reason, who the maximi are. So it tells you who's in charge. And the interesting thing it establishes in a number of cases is it gives us peeks into the organization. So it mentions that the craft mason, their maximi are just elevated, humble workers. It mentions that the Caserify reports to the rest of the Order of Reason, but they themselves do not have representatives except for the shadowy figure of the Fulman and the Suavium, which is interesting because later it becomes the Thunderbolt and Razor, but here it is the Thunderbolt and the Kiss. Uh, it mentions that the Caserify are more female than male, which I thought was interesting. So we have a group of technocratic lady assassins. I'm certainly not going to argue with that. And that they are not about orthodoxy, but advancing the cause. So in my head, I always had the idea of the Caserify as just being like kind of the internal affairs and secret police of the technocracy, but it's it's a bit different than that. It makes no mention of Chiron Mustai, who notionally had come from them when he kind of uh, defected and destroyed all history of them and joined the Hermetics. And I'm curious if that is something that was created later or something that just hasn't been revered yet. We get a home base for the Ali Batin, the Sir Makamut, as their base. They talk about their primi just representing further hidden masters. So it gives us the idea that the primus is more the representative than the leader in a lot of cases. The Akashiana are mentioned as having a being centered in Meru in the East. And it is interesting to hear Meru referred to as a Chinese or East Asian place as opposed to what I'm familiar with, Mount Meru being kind of somewhere in the Himalayan plateau or further west. It makes mention of the mercy schism within the chorus that in this era they are calm and far from the most dogmatic. It talks about the Gabrielites wanting a single church and hating the liberalism of the order of reason. The hermetics are like, hey, did we pick the right side to be on? It does present a problem for me in that since the Silificati are represented as like a full-on player option. What is the difference between them and the Order of Hermes? They try to address this in a few places, and it never quite is. Importantly, in this book, the Verbena grab the title for most likely to show nipple compared to any of the other factions in it, and it goes full-on titty. We get the idea that within the Order of Reason, each group has two maximi that report to the inner circle, that they have the rank of Resplendent Maximus, and that each convention has 20, 20 honori, each overseeing a district of the world. So we get a little bit more mention of how that's going to work. The groups feel a little bit different in that the Gabrielites saying that they want to spread God through prosperity kind of feels syndicate -y. and likewise the Celestial Masters feel a little bit 
iteratory in trying to find the mass order to kind of set up society. And it makes sense. It's also weird to see that the, like, the unifying idea of the Celestial Masters is we're all rich and well-bred. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. The Craftsmasons talk about dismantling the maze of servitude, which I liked as kind of this, this concept of we have these structures and strictures on the commoners. We should free them in some way and this is an idea that gets brought up again later in other editions of mage but here it is foremost it mentions the via silicos which are the giant quartz beads that can be used to communicate around the world and are kind of the true heroes of the ascension war apparently so uh it gets brought up in a bunch of random places it's good to know that they're firmly established as being present now and that just made my heart sing this chapter was fun it was full of kind of reminiscences you get a little bit more information on how to use each group which i wish future editions had done i like knowing who's in charge and how a group chooses its leader i think that's very flavorful it's good to me knowing what their internal protocols kind of look like i get the sense that we're probably not going to get like tradition books for this era so it kind of needed to give that information and uh yeah those are my thoughts on chapter six yeah i was uh, quite pleased with the uh, faction templates uh, every two-page spread has uh, an illustration of a typical member and i think two different artists did those but i thought they were they were well done, uh, attractive. Certainly got me more interested uh, to read more. Page 125, I saw a quote that uh, stood out to me. Uh, quote uh, is talking about the Akashic Brotherhood. Mingling dough with the faiths of Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Master Kung, they do something special all their own. Uh, Master Kung, of course, is better known to English speakers as Confucius. And I see, once again, all of the elements of East Asian culture just being thrown into a box labeled Akashic Brotherhood. I've been reading some uh, East Asian history lately, and the Confucians did not like being grouped together with the Taoists and the Buddhists. In fact, they took exception to it repeatedly in, in multiple different uh, kingdoms. But uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, as a whole, looking over Chapter 5, I think it is a really, really nice uh, resource. I would even recommend it to uh, people who are running uh, Mage in the modern day, and they just want some little nice little uh, details of history to look back to, to give some kind of background for what's going on in their modern day game. I would read through Chapter 5 of Sorcerer's Crusade. I think there's some great material, easily digestible, and well-presented. So let's take a look at Chapter 6, and this is explanation of what a storyteller should know and uh, general advice. Uh, Terry, what do you think of uh, Chapter 6? This is weak. I don't think it provided enough information and direction. The person who wrote it seems to have a very specific idea of how a story will unfold. It is a bunch of storyteller advice on how to run a high drama period game, which ignores the manifold other types of games that can be run. Part of that is the fact that in the intervening 25 years, this book came out in 97, we get a broader notion of what a tabletop game can be. It focuses on having some sort of arch-villain for your character, and they work through henchmen, and that there's a storyteller checklist. And it says, to read this book and to read any other supplements you find helpful as well, but you won't know if the other supplements are helpful until you've read them. It recommends that good role-playing should increase dice pools. I tend to shy away from that unless the game has something like a stunt system. We at our tables choose the behaviors we want to reward in our players, and sometimes I feel uncomfortable giving a more theatric person just more dice. So the implication that since the the player is more charismatic, that the character is more capable in the world is not something I'm I'm a huge fan of. There are different types of drama, and everyone adds to it in their own way. It talks about how uh, to run a seeking, that you deal with an impediment, and then you make a willpower roll, which to me is idiotic, because like, how lame is it if you're like, hey, I want to start my seeking. Okay, in the first chamber, you encounter an impediment. Roll willpower. You have failed. Your seeking is over. Like, that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's some DOS uh, text adventure of go north, you are eaten by a Gru. And I, <laughs> I just don't think dice rolls really have a role in Seekings as presented, but but that is me. It mentions that chumminess is a problem of crossovers, and I totally agree with this. It also talks about having a high plot, low plot option where you have two sets of characters that are going back and forth and exploring the world. I did think that was neat, but this is a storytelling chapter, and mage storytelling chapters to me have never been its strong suit. So what did you think, Adam? First off, on page 166, there's a quote that just stood out to me. Let's face it, most of us don't get into life or death warfare every day, so why should our characters, end quote? Well, I'll tell you why, because it's dramatic. It's, yeah. it's interesting. <laughs> it's what's called fun. <laughs> yeah, it's because movies and novels aren't exactly like real life. If they were, they would be 
boring. <laughs> so that's why. But uh, okay, putting aside the uh, details for a moment, looking at chapter six as a whole, I looked at this as the point of view of this book is trying to present itself as a separate role-playing game. And so if I look at it from the point of view of training wheels for a first-time game master or, or storyteller, as they refer to it here, I think this there is some good advice in here. And so I don't react that negatively to it. But when I think of this chapter as some advice for someone who has been running role-playing games for a while, yeah, I, I, I do agree with Terry. There's a real solid presentation of the ideas that held sway with the White Wolf crew in the mid-1990s. Uh, the games, the kind of games they liked to play, the kind of games they were shooting for, they were helping people to run those games. And in the years since then, uh, a lot of us uh, have realized there are many different ways to do our games. We don't have to have a main villain that everyone's gunning for, although it can be quite popular. So generally, I, I agree with Terry when I look at it from the point of view of um, giving advice to a seasoned storyteller. But when I think of it as training wheels for a newbie, I don't think this chapter is is really that bad. Uh, one more point um, uh, from page uh, 176 to page 177, they have more uh, streamlined, simplified advice on uh, working with resonance in a game. They don't give specific systems, but they give some general guidelines for how you could do it uh, in a less complicated fashion. And um, I it really appealed to me. I think strict rules aren't always needed for resonance in a game. I, I really like their simple rule of thumb for how to manage it uh, here. So I think that's definitely worth looking at, especially for people who are not always comfortable with, with full, robust, complex uh, rule sets. But let's move on to chapter seven, which is basic game rules. Not, not the sphere system magic rules, but just the basic rules of the game. I don't think I need to elaborate on that too much. Terry, what did you find here? Insert sound of cracking knuckles. <laughs> this still uses the rule of botching, where if you have more ones than successes, it is a botch. Um, if you have other successes that are canceled out, it is still a botch. Initiative, you can substitute another attribute for alertness. It is alertness plus wits against difficulty four to determine initiative. Walking and calming a horse are both listed as simple actions that do not require a role. I like the idea that in this era, the horses are unusually tame or the people are unusually competent at, calm, at calming a horse. General action role is introduced to simplify extended actions where it recommends to end combat with a single role. This has been introduced before as an optional rule, but here it gets a little bit more information. Uh, driving a cart is dexterity plus crafts as opposed to dexterity plus ride. Torture uses manipulation plus torture versus dexterity plus torture. You need a strength of five and a willpower of at least nine with the specialty of horse throwing on average to be able to throw a horse. I was very curious about that. Guns do double damage. It's mentioned once and never really brought up again. It kind of introduces a more narrative combat system if you want. Uh, damage in this era is only aggravated or non-aggravated. All non-ag damage can be soaked. Titan armor is introduced kind of as the precursor to like the Allenson hard suit, and it radiates an aura of dread and gives you a armor rating of seven. I like the fact that fencing is listed as a combination of skills, including swordsmanship, politics, anatomy, and repartee. Thank God we got fencing rules. We, we finally got rules for cannons. And by that, I mean, we did not get really rules for cannons. They're just kind of mentioned in detail. And later on, they tell you how big of a meaty paw of dice you get to roll whenever they explode uh, and kill your own characters. We get the shortest rules for spirit magic in existence. The Lucerne Hammer is not listed. And I was slightly discombobulating that the concealment ratings did not include whether or not it could be hidden in a trench coat because I'm just used to that from uh, contemporary games. There are so many star signs in the, in the table of weapons indicating that each of them has special subsystems and that made my heart grow three sizes. I then had to see a cardiologist. A table is listed as a weapon and I hope this is a whole ass table where you just pick up and fight someone with a table as opposed to like throwing it at them or hitting them with the the chair of a, a, the leg of a table. It doesn't feel like a renaissance game without stats for the looser and hammer. All my years of uh, reading but not playing Dungeons and Dragons have taught me that. The soak rate for falling is difficulty 8 instead of difficulty 6, implying that the ground is somehow harder during the renaissance or people are more fragile. Also, falling does flat levels of damage as opposed to rolling dice, indicating that gravity is much less fickle in this era. We get a little bit of magic information where spirit 3 is required to harm a spirit versus spirit 2. It doesn't really describe magic in the other world. It indicates that spirits change their main to match the viewer's expectations rather than it being a function of the viewer. And I thought, 
that was interesting. As one would expect from me, I immediately glommed onto the infinitude of small differences that don't actually make much of a difference, but I noticed them, and that's proof that I actually read the darn book. But it's it's a rules chapter. It's a mage sec to a rules chapter, and for that, it is fine. What did you think, Adam? Uh, well, um, two things that uh, stood out to me. I was remembering the Do, the Akashic Brotherhood martial art called Do. They had rules for that in first edition, which uh, second edition just basically pointed back to them and said, yeah, that. And then new Do rules were created for uh, Mage Revised Edition, which were uh, quite different. And so here we have a, a third set of Do rules, which are, I guess you could say, in between the two. I actually rather like them. Perhaps not as powerful as the first edition Do rules, but maybe that's for the best. Best. Uh, with the uh, number of uh, successes you can count on when using punches and kicks with Doe here, it does uh, make it stand out as being superior to uh, regular sleeper martial arts and the systems, I guess, once you get used to them. I don't think they're very complicated. I, I would consider using these. Now, it does state that the, the Maya, the Dream Realms, uh, that are mentioned in every edition of Mage. This game connects them firmly to the Dreaming, which is a sort of, of supernatural realm uh, that is uh, detailed in the game Changeling the Dreaming. So this game basically tells you, yeah, if, if your characters want to go into Maya, then grab a Changeling book and there you go. And th that's not my favorite way to represent things, but uh, for those people who are uh, Changeling fans, that's, that's a great uh, possibility to uh, connect the two games. So that's not something to criticize, but it is something I noticed. Uh, so I guess we'll take a look at chapter 8. This is a beefy chapter with uh, complete rules and examples for magic. And when I say magic, I mean the sphere system. And uh, Terry, what stood out for you? In this era, we have the idea of there being casual magic, which is that which is known and accepted, which would be called coincidental. The idea here is that if you're playing a Renaissance game, there are certain presumptions about the world that are key differences. And the rules do a lot of work to help you understand that, where they talk about miracles are going to be accepted, long invocations that result in great magic are going to be accepted, but things that are instantaneous or appear to be occurring without a cause are not going to be. We get the idea that there is also vain or vulgar magic. It indicates something is vulgar if no effort is put into it or is based on foreign beliefs, if a demand is made without repayment. So I like the idea that somebody just compelling a spirit to do something could be vulgar, but if they wager for it first or negotiate that it could prove to be casual. Here, the minimum difficulty can go down to two, and there are slightly modified botches on extended action rolls. The first botch cancels out all successes, but you can continue at plus one difficulty with an expenditure of a willpower point. If your retay is four more than the level of the effect that you're trying to do, it can be automatic. The domino effect is much more forgiving here that it says that if you do a whole bunch of casual effects in a single scene, that not until the fifth spell does the difficulty increase by one, as opposed to in other editions where after the second, the third is going to increase in difficulty. Here it specifically says that the range of effects is line of sight. So you do not need correspondence for anything happening within your own field of view. It is slightly more difficult if it's occurring at the edge of your vision or it's concealed. We get the introduction to the new Scourge mechanic that for each point of Scourge, and Scourge is more or less accumulated the same way that Paradox was in terms of how much you get uh, for vulgar versus, uh, for vain versus casual effects, that for each five points, you add a fortune die to your roll. From my understanding, but it is not clear in the text, fortune dice strictly add interpretation for a scourge and cannot add successes. So if you're doing a dice roll with difficult that's difficulty seven and you have 10 points of scourge, you would roll two fortune dice. If any of those fortune dice roll a one, you get a some sort of bane. If any of them show a zero and none of them show a one, you get a boon. Banes cancel out boons. And these are based on kind of your character's moral state, their worldview, what's happening in the area. The game gives you a lot more guidance of what paradox effects can kind of look like or scourge manifestations in this case. And that is kind of what the paradox system looks like. There is an upside. It is possible for you to get a boon, which causes your effect to be miraculously capable and not just something that kind of stinks. I do like the fact that you can have successful effects that are nonetheless in some way hindered by it. The idea that an effect is either successful, a botch, or failure, and there is no such thing as a messy success or a miraculous failure, I, I think is a, a little bit boring if you only have those three. It introduces rules to purify yourself of the scourge, that you can kind of go into a more monastic state, forswear magic for a bit, and bleed off scourge. It does make that scourge effect a little bit complicated 
complicated. So it looks like you're looking at the size of the scourge pool, the number of ones that you get in it, and potentially the number of regular ones that you also get on that roll. It appears that devices in this era require a point of willpower rather than a dot of willpower to make, which makes those uh, much easier to produce. There's some changes in magic between editions. I don't feel strongly about these like bands now require correspondence three but you can create a ward with two the gauntlet is generally lower and we get the idea of magical styles one of my rules is a game cannot say something is important if it doesn't have a spot for it on your character sheet and even in the extensive character sheet that we get in this magical styles does not have a, a place this is kind of the precursor to paradigm plus practice the idea that your character has a worldview and we are introduced to a, non a number of them and it's very interesting to look at them and see them as precursors to the paradigms that we get in the 20th anniversary existence it indicates that pre-prepared effects are very common that you would set up something that you would create a potion or an invocation of some type uh, break it at the time of use and then you roll your retay there Almost all of the magical styles posit some greater power in the universe. Prime 2 in this lets you do ag damage to spirit. Prime 4 lets you change the fundamental properties of something. And again, these are just different. That's fine. The rotes I found very messy because they do something that bothers me in that they introduce novel systems that one would not infer from just reading the dot description. So for instance, there is a rote uses prime that does 3x damage. Um, as in three times the amount of damage as you roll a number of successes, where normally that only occurs if you had six or more successes based on the damage chart. There's lots of you can use this sphere or this sphere, and you don't get in a lot of cases, guidance on what the actual difference is. It kind of suggests that different people have different approaches. Like my favorite example for a system that comes out of nowhere is the one dot prime effect of heart's blood that allows you to turn health levels into quintessence. Um, it's not indicated as being part of what prime one can do. But again, magic is hard. It's big and it's messy. It has a very extensive common magical effects, and I feel like this would be enough to run things. I think the book has done a good enough job of setting up flavor and an idea of how the world works that I would be able to kind of infer what I had to if I had to. What did you think, Adam? This was an extensive chapter, and actually I have a, a number of notes here. I do not like the one-page sphere descriptions. I think it's too short, too limited. I understand that they were trying to simplify, and they certainly had their heart in the right place, but I, I don't like the result. Common Magical Feats page is, of course, elaborated upon in Mage 20. We can see the, the, the roots of Mage 20's approach to presenting magic rules here. I'm Again, I'm just not in favor of the common magical feats chart. I, to be honest, I liked the uh, first two editions where they said, look, we're going to give you some detailed information about the spheres, some information about how to mix them. What can you do after that? Work it out. See what you stumble across. You know, if you get some, do something too crazy, your storyteller will, will tell you no. But uh, for the most part, explore. See what you find. I, I like approaching the sphere system in that way. I think the long sphere descriptions in the previous two books um, really strengthened a person's understanding of the fundamentals, and then building on the fundamentals from there for each person is, is not so difficult, at least in my experience. Uh, page 226 tells us uh, detailed foci is fun. Well, fun is subjective. I don't really want a book to tell me what is and isn't fun at my table. I, uh, also, the notice the assumption made here. Removing foci does not make magic in a game nothing more than boring rules with no thought given to drama, and they, they try to present that uh, in this chapter. Although I'm usually against the confining limitations of hedge magic being applied to true mages, it actually works, when not carried too far, for a Renaissance setting. Of course, in the Renaissance era, abstract thinking was uh, much less and more limited at that time, and so this book's approach to that is, um, I think, entirely appropriate. Let's see, page 227 has the role. The text admits more dice increases the chance of a botch, but claims it's a lesson in pride. <laughs> this was recognized as a problem uh, across the board with the storyteller rule system, and that's why the, the third edition, revised editions, came out for most of the games. It was to fix this flaw. So at this point, they could see this flaw, but they sort of write it off as, well, th this, is, uh, this is character building. It's like, no, it was a problem. That's why you fixed it. Uh, this chapter <laughs> definitively links quiet with becoming a marauder. I don't know if that is the first time that the mage books do that. This was back in 1998. But it's interesting to see uh, that progression through the games. And, of course, Mage 20 also makes that connection. The nine spheres were created by the craft masons and then adopted by the order of reason and then adopted by the traditions. 
So apparently those craft masons, they didn't just pretend to be good at invention, they were really darn good at it. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, where did the nine-sphere system come from in the setting of Mage? This is discussed at different points in the Mage books, and they disagree, which is, is flavorful for a setting. Some say the Order of Hermes created it. Other people say the Order of Reason created it. And here is a third claim, which uh, I think is fun. Let's see, page 245. Characters don't talk in game speak. Well, generally, I agree with that, but I've got to say the five World of Darkness role-playing games really are an exception because one of the defining concepts at the root of all five of these games was they said, look, wouldn't it be fun if we had some creative, interesting game terms and then made them be words that the characters use in the setting. For example, vampires actually talk about the disciplines that they can learn, the different vampire powers. They, they use the word disciplines, just like in the rules. And so uh, when Mage started, uh, Mages did talk about the nine spheres with the names of the nine spheres. And this book is saying, oh, don't do that. It's, it's so awful. And it's like, well, I don't think it's all that awful. But uh, that's, a, of course, a matter of opinion. This book may be the beginning of the idea that the spirit sphere is used to create a soul. This is, of course, is, is something that we've heard uh, Terry speak on in uh, past episodes of Tomes of Magic, and I, I've got to agree with him. Talisman creation takes a temporary willpower point, not a permanent one. I kind of like this. It, it makes it uh, easier to make the talismans or, or magical treasures, as they call them here. The only problem is that would tend to make one believe they were uh, more easily found, more, more often come across, and the book wants to emphasize that, no, there's, there's not a lot of these. But um, I think in a higher magic uh, kind of a setting like the Renaissance era, uh, I think it'd be fun to come across more of these magical treasures. So I'm, I'm in favor of this rule. Page 260 gives us nice, brief warding rules, which is, of course, using magic to stop someone from spying on you or to stop someone from visiting you. And uh, I, I actually like this. Uh, Mage 20 gives us uh, quite uh, detailed rules, which um, is, is exactly what some Mage fans want. It, it's not really my preference, so seeing the brief kind of rule of thumb way of approaching it uh, here in this chapter is, is quite nice for me. I think I might come back to this and uh, make use of it in the future. But from here, we go from Chapter 8 to the final chapter, which is not called Chapter 9. It's called the Appendix. And this is a resource uh, for storytellers. We see info on stats, uh, info and stats for regular people uh, from that era. We also get animals, infernalists, we have to remember the Nefandi aren't formalized yet. We get marauders, uh, spirits and magical treasures. The chapter ends with a recommended reading list. And so Terry, what did you think of the appendix? I like the fact that we got more information on the Seven Thunders. I thought they were a lame-ass sorcerer society, but they're like, hey, five centuries ago, they were kind of a thing to be reckoned with. And saying, hey, five centuries ago, they were kind of a big deal is a recurring theme that's going to happen in Mage as well as in this setting. The arch spheres are suggested. We get stats for Tezgul the Insane, and he's kind of insane, so it's good when those two things match. Uh, we get St. George's Plate, which is Armor 8, and Titan Plate, which is 7. We get Horatio's Thunder as an item, and I think that's great. It is this six-chambered pistol Gatling gun thing, and I'm like, yep. It kind of sets the idea of what high science enlightened device technology is going to look like in this dark fantastic era, which I like. And some people wonder, hey, everything under Bricado kind of was the same and stagnated. There was no kind of development. And I quite simply think those people are wrong. I was one of them. Previously, we had five different sets of statistics for balloons, and we thought that was going to be the apex of ways of moving around. But now we have sky riggers, which are balloons on steroids. So it is good to know that by going back in time, we were able to advance the technology of balloons. It is also interesting to me that I, I don't know if I just made this up, but the line between the sky riggers being these things that launched and keep going to the heavens until they disappear kind of into the umbra as the precursors of the Quile machine, I thought was there. And I like the idea that the unifying force of the technocracy is not dealing with reality deviance, but the fact that we need space balloons. And if that is what it is, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Yeah, the appendix gave what I need to run in this era, dealing with things like wolves and lions seems more likely than with like an armed security guard, maybe. So it was fine. 
Yeah. Uh, I think uh, linking the reaction, the very reactionary seven thunders to true faith should be considered. Is true faith about an individual's strong will in the face of all opposition, or is it about actually connecting to a benevolent higher power? This is something I think a storyteller ought to think about. Page 282, quote, By the 20th century, these infernalists will have all but won the Ascension War, end quote. That is uh, picked up in Mage 20, but uh, for me, I, I think it's a little too heavy-handed. Yeah. I don't want to know who's who's uh, sitting uh, in the driver's seat in the, the tw- late 20th century. Um, I think storytellers can work that out on their own. As Terry said, they do give stats for Tezgul the Insane. He is a powerful mage, and I think it's interesting to see how they backed up their advice for storytellers, saying, hey, look, uh, a powerful villain can be very interesting. It can really um, motivate your players, and so we'll, we'll give you one. Here is a very powerful mage who is just... Everyone is going to agree this guy is really darn evil. And so no one's going to say, no, I like him. I don't want to fight against him. Everybody's going to say, dude, that guy's insane. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to get what's on the tin. Um. (laughs) They mentioned earlier that the uh, elemental courts are more important in this era of history. And then we get six elemental spirits. And I thought they were quite interesting. Um, uh, Not only the stats, but just reading the descriptions of what these six different elemental spirits are like. You know, there's water and air, etc. I thought they were interesting. I thought they were flavorful. It motivated me to to pull them into my games, if even in a minor way. So I thought that was great. Um, I they give some magical treasures and the ones for the mystic mages or the traditions were all, all right. I, they didn't really get me so excited, but when I read through a number of the devices of the order of reason, I thought they were so creative and so interesting in revised edition books. We read in a number of passing references to the via silicos, which are basically crystal balls that let order of reason, uh, magi uh, talk to each other um, over great distances. And here we get information about, you know, how they work, how they're set up. They're put in these very special rooms where they have to collect sunlight in a certain way and they have to be put into a certain arrangement. If you walk into the room, pick it up and move it like three inches to the left, it just doesn't work anymore. And everybody in the place is going to run you out. So, I mean, it, it was interesting. It was flavorful. It's like, wow, these, this is powerful magic to enable communication, which gives them a real edge. But this is a really, really fussy system. It only works during daylight hours. And you want to talk to a guy who's many miles away and it's night for him and it's day for you. Well, too bad. Talk to somebody else. So, yeah, I, I just thought it was really interesting. It made me want to want to pull these different devices into a game and, and see how the players would react to them. But uh, that wraps up my thoughts on the appendix. So... I guess it's time to talk about the book in general and our impressions of it. Terry, let's hear what you think. I had uh, a number of things that I was looking for as I read through. One, was it going to deliver on the promise of this being primarily for now Renaissance Europe and a slightly more consistent worldview and showing a slightly more consistent set of paradigms that are warring with each other as opposed to the absolute explosion of worldviews in a contemporary game. We don't have an idea of chaos magic. We don't have an idea of romantic magic or dumpster magic. We don't have the full panoply of world religious beliefs uh, yet. So you can talk about it in slightly more unified language. And boy, as a reader, that was kind of a relief. And suddenly Mage the Awakening as a draw kind of made sense to me. The idea of if we have one magic system, that's going to be way easier and we can enumerate on it much more. The system felt less internally consistent. There were a bunch of cases where it would refer to one role. And when you looked elsewhere, it used a kind of a different one. It's pushing for the game to be more narrative. I'm curious what Revise would have looked like if that had been done under this same team. But again, this being done in 98, I think I referred to it as being done in 97 earlier, the tools of a proper narrative game as in narrative mechanics were not there yet. So it, it is interesting to see how that would have gone um, because in a lot of cases, it just kind of feels like a return to the 1E vampire's tendency for improv or 1E mummy, which kind of presumes that everyone has a similar notion of a story and is going for a particular type of drama. One of my questions reading through is we now have a 500-year gap between the two settings approximately, between the contemporary world and what is happening here. And my question is, does magic make progress? Are there ways in which a modern hermetic is better outfitted than one from this era? We get the idea that Scourge is less punitive than than Paradox. 
And in this era, just about everyone is religious in some way, shape, or form, whether that be pagan or not. It is interesting to me that we talk about there aren't other umbral realms. Maybe it's one of those things where there haven't been enough mages for enough time to explore and find them. Magical difficulties of this era are about the same. It's not like coincidental is highest sphere plus two. So... There's very little enforcement of the idea that modern magic is harder, except for the fact that the nature of Scourge has changed, even if its ultimate severity is kind of on par in a lot of cases with Paradox. I'm curious to see how the Technomancers develop. Like Adam said, I thought the High Science, capital H, capital S devices were, were super fun. And I'm really curious to see how that develops over the the rest of the line. But to me, it's 500 years ago. We should have more Horizon Realms. We should have more Masters wandering around. Unless the game is taking the track that, hey, the, the Black Death has just finished. There's not a lot of anyone around. And Europe is kind of repopulating itself. That is a tension that I didn't feel was resolved. It was pleasing to see Kenneth Height in the author's list and reading through the history and how just everything seemingly rolled onto the page makes me wonder if that was done for memory. Uh, listeners know from the other episodes, I do have a fondness for the writing of Ken Height and very much enjoy his podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff as uh, fodder for games. So this is kind of setting the bar for where Sorcerer's Crusade is. I am curious to see how it develops over the ensuing books. This is a perfectly fine mage book. It felt very much in line with the rest of second edition, maybe a little bit better because you could tell that people had kind of gotten their sea legs and were now implementing the ideas that they had wanted to do. Now we see if they can carry through on it. And those are kind of my overall thoughts. Yeah. The order of reason flying ships is a major concept in this book, both in the artwork and uh, mentioned several times uh, throughout the book. And I, I thought that was very interesting. I like to see how the Order of Reason had decided on this new kind of technology that they were probably hoping was going to change everything. And then 100 or 200 years later, they had to admit, look, it's just not working. This is just not going to make it into the consensus. The scourge is just too heavy on this. We're gonna have to abandon this and try something else. And so it's something that makes this era unique. And I like this idea of we're putting all our eggs in this basket. We have high hopes for it. No, it just didn't work out. I think it's kind of awkward that the Council of Nine is forming during the timeline of this game. As I said before, the timeline is uh, that they're trying to support anyways is 1400 to 1550. And it's kind of the mid or even late 1400s that the Council of Nine forms. So if you put your game in 1425, there is no Council of Nine. And so one of the players says, well, I want to play an, uh, an Akashic uh, mage. And it's like, well, okay, they haven't started visiting Europe yet. So let's, we got to figure this one out. So that that's a uh, I don't know, something to consider. I don't think it's a, a game breaker, of course, but I, I think it was just kind of a little odd. Like, you can play a tradition mage, even though for like half of the timeline we're giving you, there are no traditions. <laughs> My point of view is you really need a first or second edition Mage the Ascension rulebook to get a really firm grip on the Nine Sphere system and what you can do with it. So I would encourage that. However, to be honest, I don't think there's anybody who has seriously considered playing Sorcerer's Crusade who doesn't who isn't already familiar with Mage. So I don't think that's a big ask. One of the nice things about Sorcerer's Crusade is there's only one edition. If you like it, it won't change on you. <laughs> Um, they kept the writing brief and to the point. I appreciated that. I got the, the impression, as Terry said, that the people working on this uh, got their sea legs. They got some experience and they said, hey, look, let's get to the point and move on. Uh, we don't have to belabor anything. The other book uh, that felt like that to me was Kindred of the East, where, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was something when I when I started reading through that had a very much the same vibe where it's like, oh, you have a different band. They kind of have ideas on what they're going to do. Let's see how this turns out. So, yeah. Uh. Yeah, I haven't read that for so many years, I really can't remember it, but you, you got me curious about it. So one of the big questions for a mage fan looking at Sorcerer's Crusade is, is it different enough from, I guess, in second edition to make it interesting? I mean, why don't I just say that the era is different and run with the rules I already got? I mean, do I really need another rule book? I think it does pass the test. I think uh, Sorcerer's Crusade is different enough to make it worth picking up and, and worth reading through. Uh, paradox works very differently. I mean, a person could argue if paradox and scourge are two words for the same thing or if they are, in fact, two very different things. But the purpose it serves in the game is the same. And uh, I think scourge is, is different enough to make it interesting. And also, although they don't 
emphasize it very well. There are two or three places in the book where they briefly mention the fact that what is coincidental and what is vulgar is quite different in the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And if you can find those passages and pay attention to them as you go by, I I really think it makes it a a very different setting, a very different game. You can have mages um, basically getting a a shaft of sunlight going through the sky at midnight to burn up a vampire, and you would have a number of people saying, well, he is a priest— they can do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and and stuff like that. Hermetic mages can do all kinds of amazing magic, and people would say, whoa, it's a wizard. Let's all run. And instead of it's like, you can't do that. It's like, no, he can do that. Why? Because he's a wizard. Damn, there's wizards out there, dude. <laughs> Lay low. Let him, let him pass by. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, magical effects from the Sirius system that your players can pull off, and it will be coincidental magic, not vulgar. And uh, I, I think it's worth, uh, as a storyteller, uh, really getting a grip on that and seeing how that can produce different games uh, with your players. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I would love to explore it. Uh, my last point here is I was a little disappointed to see basically no mention of, I guess, mage society, like works, uh, books or scrolls or something where mages teach each other mage-only knowledge and like pass it between their groups. There's, there's really no mention of that. It's just assumed that casual sleepers, linear magicians, and sphere-using mages. They all read the same books because, you know, it's all the same stuff anyways. What's the difference? And I really liked the emphasis in early 2nd edition and 1st edition of mages have their own societies where they pass their own knowledge that they try to hide from other people, which which is very World of Darkness. I mean, the werewolves and the vampires are doing the same thing. It's like, oh, keep the secret from the outsiders because we don't want the secret to get out. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of uh, fun to be had there. Well, coming to the end of the episode, uh, Terry, were there any quotes in this book that just grabbed your attention? Yeah, uh, there was one in the intro that I liked that said, "They're uh, they uh, pagans are little more than barbarians. The pagan creed lies in a shallow grave in these parts. It takes little for them to go scrabbling at the mold to dig it up again." I thought that was uh, pithy and an interesting way of saying it, and to suggest that things that are thought settled in the era are not nearly as so, as well as using mold as a term for indicating grave, uh, a shallow grave covering. The book uses a lot of period-appropriate language. In the timeline, my favorite entry, which is entirely appropriate for the precursor to the precursor to the precursor of the Society of Ether, is 1195. Lorenzo Golo creates balloon airship, dies when it explodes. Yep, that's Society of Ether. Um, and I also liked the Akashic Brotherhood, quote of the body is a cup the soul is water the stronger the cup the more it holds i've always liked the the stereotypes and the quotes in the faction things i always thought that was some of the best writing in mage and this book certainly continues that awesome yeah yeah i agree um i kind of missed those when i was going through but uh, now that you mentioned them i remember them and, and those those were some good examples of writing mm-hmm. Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in other people's searches. We would certainly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there, see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. We have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search YouTube for Mage the Podcast. All lowercase, don't sweat the colon, you'll find us. This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers. Terry, can you share the names of our executive producers? I would be glad to. I would like to thank uh, Oracle's Jay Widener, Josh Hillerup, Buck Gregory, Christopher Phillips, The Crew of Erebus, and Mikhail, as well as our other executive producers. Alex, Alexia, Anders S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Badurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Boo, Boogers to the Sixth, Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Der- uh, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsek, Fraggerock, Gargan Noir, George Laura, Guy Conan Stewart, Eobold, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, jo- Jolyn Andes, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halper- Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aran, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Puka G, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Conley, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go ye old change the ye old world, ye old 
may just yeah bye um i opened the wrong pdf um good thing i edit these so no one else has to pay for me being a dumb dumb um the 